Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your presence here with us. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the spirit who inspired it and the assurance that he is at work in each of our hearts, bringing illumination and transformation in ways we all desperately need. And so, Lord, help us each tonight to be attentive to what you have for us. Lord, thank you for the truth we find in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I pray that we would learn all you have for us. Lord, as we think about our condition as fallen human beings tonight, I pray that you would help us, each of us, to see you as you are in your holiness and see ourselves in light of our sin and our desperate need for a Savior. So Lord, help us. We need a miracle to take an honest look at ourselves and get beyond our pride in that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work as only you can and as we desperately need you to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome, living a dream. Yeah, you knew it. I knew you would. So I was thinking, what would be a good illustration to start our time tonight? And I was thinking about the Lego movie, and I was thinking about that song, because it's such a fun, cheerful, optimistic, encouraging song. Everything is awesome. The only thing is, it's not that. I don't know if you know that, but the author, the, the guy who wrote that song and won an Academy Award for it, when he wrote that song was actually going through a divorce after nine years of marriage, divorcing his wife and the mother of their three children. He was anything but feeling like life was awesome. I mean, listen to the lyrics. Everything is awesome. Have you heard the news? Everyone's talking. Life is good. Because everything's awesome. Lost my job. There's a new opportunity. More free time for my awesome community. I feel more awesome than an awesome possum. And then he says, blue skies, bouncy springs. We just named two awesome things. A Nobel Prize. A piece of string. Do you know that's all, what's awesome? Everything. Dogs with fleas, allergies. A book of Greek antiquities. Brand new pants. A very old vest, awesome items are the best, trees, frogs, clogs, they're awesome. Rocks, clocks, and socks, they're awesome. And he goes on and on, and he says what most kids who hear this song don't realize is it's dripping with sarcasm. It's dripping with irony. And I, I was skiing, cross-country skiing around the lake today with my golden retriever, Biscuit, who's an awesome dog, and I was thinking, should I start with that illustration? And as I came around the dam on my skis, do you know what I came across? Some kid had lost his Lego thermos. Yes. Isn't that sad? Is it yours? No, it's not yours. Is it yours? It's not yours. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that incredible? I think that was an affirmation that I should use this illustration. Yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. Anybody want this? <laughs> if 
But isn't that amazing? That, that song, that song is actually mocking people. That song is mocking people who are simplistically optimistic, who are not thinking very clearly about life. That song is making fun of people who don't realize how hard things are, it seems, and how often things aren't awesome, like dogs with fleas. My dog hates having fleas, right? Everything isn't awesome, actually, depending on how you think about it. And as a matter of fact, this song is making fun of people who not only uh, think everything's awesome in a simplistic way, but people who have lack of proportion in their loves and in what they think is awesome. Everything isn't equally awesome. Some things aren't awesome. Some things are horrible. Some things are really discouraging and dark and difficult in life. You ever know somebody who doesn't seem to be in touch with that and they have almost this, this fake optimism and you just want to say, what world are you watching? Everything isn't awesome. And, and so we've got to realize that life is filled with difficulty. In, in this book, this counter-wisdom, the dark side of wisdom that Ecclesiastes is showing us is a gift to us. It's asking, what's the meaning of life? And last night we looked at the cycles of nature that just never stop. They just keep coming. The tide comes in. The tide goes out. Cycles go on. And we never seem to be able to catch up. And life is filled with a meaninglessness if we'll just be honest about that. And in these two phrases, living life under the sun, which means disconnected to God, disconnected to the things of eternity, it leads to a life of chasing after wind. You know, my daughter begged us for a hamster when she was little. And so we got her a little hamster. She named it Pumpkin Pumpkin was amazing. Yeah, I had never had a hamster before. And I remember, I remember we, I came into the room where, where Pumpkin was one day, and his cheeks were puffed out, and I thought he was dying of some disease, and we were going to rush him to the vet until he spit out all the seeds he had stored in his cheeks. It was shocking to see, but, you know, he was a fascinating creature. I loved watching him just live life, but we had a little wheel in his cage. And Pumpkin loved to run on that wheel. And he got his exercise that way because he lived in very, you know, confined space. And that's great for a hamster, but, but do you ever feel like you're a hamster on a wheel running and working and striving and never actually getting anywhere? And if you do get somewhere, you got to wonder if it really matters. Does it really make any difference? And so the book of Ecclesiastes is forcing us to think about these questions of life under the sun. Uh, this is how Isaiah puts it. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Jesus is, is, is saying the same thing over and over again. He's saying, why would you invest your life in something that doesn't lead to life? Why would you spend your life on something that doesn't lead to real life? The Apostle John says this. He says, do not love the world. Remember last night I said the New Testament, in, instead of this, this idea of meaninglessness, it's, it's worldliness. It's just shallowness. 
It's emptiness. And don't love the world. Don't just love the superficial shallowness of the world or the things in the world. Now, we, have, we love the world, for God so loved the world. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about world used in a way that's disconnected from the things of eternity, disconnected to God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, a great companion book to study along with Ecclesiastes is First and Second Corinthians because the Apostle Paul is writing to these people in Corinth who he loves, and they're living lives of superficiality. His term in Greek is katasarka. They're living according to the flesh. The NIV sort of tr interprets that a bit and says, from a worldly point of view, just what's fleeting, what's passing, what's shallow, what's superficial. In American culture, loves superficiality. California culture, especially Southern California, where I live, is about the most superficial culture in the world. I met a man who's the world's leading expert on first century Corinth, Bruce Winter. And, and I met him, and he's Australian, so he's very frank. And he said, where do you live? And I said, L.A. And he said, ah, the Corinth of the 21st century. Yeah, there's a superficiality that, that surrounds our lives and, and we can be temporarily satisfied with things that don't really matter. And so we've got to wake up to the final message that we don't want to lose sight of in the midst of the rest of Ecclesiastes. Now all has been heard. This is where we're going to end on Monday morning. The conclusion of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. That's what's driving us. But we've got to pay attention. One of the best things about coming here is it, it pushes distractions that we fill our lives with to the periphery. Probably the biggest is screens. I love being here because we're, we're untethered to our screens in unusual ways. I heard a woman who loved to travel, and then she got married, and she raised her kids, and, and then her, her husband died, and she said, you know what? She was in her 70s. She said, I'm going to travel again. And she decided to travel, and she, she made her first plans and took her trip. She went to the airport. She was so excited to meet people, even as she traveled to Europe where she was going. And she got to the airport, and she sat waiting for her plane and was eager to talk to someone about where they were going and share where she was going. And she looked around, and everybody had earbuds in. Everybody was on their screens. And in the first 15 minutes of her new adventure, she said, maybe I don't like traveling anymore because the whole reason I traveled was to interact with people and everybody seems to be in their own world now. And what's on those screens is very seldom leading us to meaning, leading us to truth. And I grieve, I grieve for your generation especially because it's all you've ever known. Do you know... I used to, everybody else my age had to just stand in the kitchen on the phone. It was attached to the wall. And people would get really long cords, you know, these springy cords, and so they could at least walk to the other side of the kitchen or around the corner so their parents couldn't hear them talking to their friends. And it, and, and it was just stuck there. And if no one was home, it would just ring and ring all lonely on the wall. 
And I, I lived before even an answering machine existed. You weren't getting messages constantly. You know, I, I teach theology. I teach a class called Theology One at Biola where we ask, who is God? Who are we humans? And who's Jesus? Really, the three most important questions of life. And when I started teaching, I'd walk in the classroom, and some of the students would be there already, and I'd hear them talking, saying, hey, what did you think of the reading last night? Hey, how's your scripture memory going? What are you learning from Psalm 145? Wasn't that amazing? We had a great conversation in our co cohort group talking about what, what we learned in the chapter, and they'd be talking about what they were learning. And now I walk in the classroom, and 15, 20 of the students are there already, and it's silent. And they're just scrolling. And when class used to be over, we would talk about the greatest things of life. And so very naturally, when class was over, they would say, hey, what'd you think of that? Boy, that was fascinating, wasn't it? Let's, let, and they would, they would talk again. But now when class is over, it's silent again. Because everybody's immediately back on their phones. Very seldom checking anything of importance. You know, it's interesting. One, this semester, I have one student. Her name's Esther. She sits right in the front row. And as soon as class is, is over, Esther just sits there. And she doesn't have another class for an hour. And she said sometimes she sits there and she just goes over what we just talked about. She reflects. She meditates. She thinks. We don't allow for that very much. We are living in what I believe is the most distracted culture that's ever lived. And Ecclesiastes comes along, and it tries to awaken in us reflectiveness, honest reflection. Do we ever stop long enough to evaluate our lives and what they're amounting to? Or our impending death? What are we living for? What really matters? What really lasts? When I got to Biola... Our president was a man named Clyde Cook, amazing godly man. At that time, he had been the president of Biola University longer than any university president in the country. He was 40 years the president of Biola, a wise and godly man. And he was one of the best basketball players in the country when he was in high school, recruited by every school going, D1 school going. And he was on his way to USC. He got a full ride to USC to play basketball there. Clyde's with Jesus now. But he was an amazing man, very tall man, piercing blue eyes. And, and I remember him telling me why he didn't go to USC, and he went to Biola instead. He led his high school basketball team to an undefeated state championship in California when he was in high school. And he thought he was on the top of the world. He thought this accomplishment, he lived in a fairly small farm town where everybody knew everybody. And so he felt like he was now the man. Because he led his high school as a senior in high school to the state championship. But the reason he ended up going to study the Bible at Biola instead of USC is because he walked into the, the, the restaurant where everybody would go to eat breakfast in his town the morning after they won the state championship. And he walked in expecting everyone to just give him all this attention and all this affirmation and all, all this applause. And he walked in, and everyone was talking about the coming baseball season. That was just going to start next week. And that's all anybody cared about is the next season. And he got this sense of, 
I, th I thought that was the most important thing I could ever accomplish. And now the next day, they're on to the next thing. And he said, I can't orient my life around this thing that's been an idol to me. And so to stop and think about what we're doing with our lives is essential. Why do modern people avoid this kind of thing so much? Here's why. We don't have answers to the question, what makes life meaningful? Most people don't have a view of the world that leads them to any satisfying answers, so they just don't ask the questions. We'll talk tomorrow night about all the ways we try to ignore this question or explain away this question. But Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher that I studied, brilliant man, they called him the brooding Dane. He was a Danish philosopher who, who tried to wake up Denmark and the, the church in Denmark in particular because they were just religious people and, and so few actually had a relationship with God that he made a lot of enemies. They literally, his students and the church of Denmark literally fought over his coffin after he died. But here's what he said. He said, if I had one thing to prescribe for all the ills of the modern world, he said it would be silence. Where we were just quiet long enough to really think honestly. And that's what Ecclesiastes is doing for us. It reveals the emptiness of life lived without meaning and, and the world will cover up with a million pretenses and diversions the questions this book is asking. So let's look at a few more possible solutions to the question, what makes life meaningful? Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're just going to look at the first 11 verses. Here we go. Ecclesiastes 2, 11. I, I can't tell you how encouraging it is to see ladies taking notes up here, getting after it. Last night... I was so blessed by how, how engaged, and I got to say that for all of you. So for years, I would say no to speaking to anybody under 18, because I just assumed it'd be like herding cats. And, and, and I just felt like, man, high school kids, they're not going to listen. You last night just defied all the stereotypes of, of your generation. You were locked in after a long day, no, no doubt, uh, tired bus rides, van rides, coming up here. And, and I'm so grateful for how respectful and attentive you were all last night. I think God's working, and I'm just grateful. And that says a lot about your church's subcultures and the leaders who have called you to a kind of maturity that's unusual. And I, I just want to affirm you in that. Thank you for that. But, but let's listen to the word of God in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So good. Listen. Ecclesiastes Two, one. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. 
I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. His honest assessment, again, from the perspective of Solomon, who had everything, everything the world could offer, he possessed. He lacked nothing, as he describes here quite vividly. And he finds it all ultimately meaningless when it's disconnected from the things of eternity. Four, four sandcastles here. Last night we saw that even worldly wisdom, you know, how to be successful in a worldly way, ended up just being a source of grief for him. That's the first sandcastle that just came and washed away in its promise of giving any meaning to life. So wisdom. And then he says pleasures. It's amazing. This was written 3,000 years ago. And it couldn't be more relevant than it is today. 3,000 years ago, and yet all our attempts to find meaning apart from God, apart from the things of eternity, are still basically the same. And so he moves from wisdom and a worldly way not being satisfied to then pleasures. He says, if the wisdom in my mind can't do it, how about the pleasures of the body? How about wine and sex and all bodily, earthly, worldly pleasures. How about those things? And then he sought those and achieved those maybe more than anyone we've ever seen in human history. He says wisdom doesn't do it. How about bodily, earthly pleasures? And it didn't. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. And he said, it was all empty. It led to nothing. He says, even wisdom doesn't do it. He's coming along and he's saying, look, you need to take an honest, sober assessment of what's really going on. You ever, you ever take a kid to a carnival where they have those games where they have levels of stuffed animals you can win? And, you know, maybe the ring toss or whatever it is. And, and the, the easy stuff, you get the little puny nothing. But, but they have these giant ones that get people to spend scads of money to try to win this little stuffed animal for, for their little kid who says, Ah, Daddy, let's win that one. Let's win that one. And so some dads do everything they can to spend it. But the wise dad looks at those animals and sees some dust on them knowing they've been there for years. And you just don't win those ones. 
And so the wise person comes along, and he may sound cynical, and it may go against what you think the world's all about. You know, your whole life you've been hearing all this this pumped-up rhetoric, like you can do anything you set your mind to. Is that true? No, not even close. Now, I'm all for encouraging people to realize they're able to do more than they often think they can do. But we get so carried away with it, and so wisdom doesn't do it, and, and pleasures of the body doesn't satisfy either. You know, I, I was the only Christian I was aware of in my high school. There may have been other ones, but they were not uh, talking about it. <laughs> I was, but, but I didn't know anybody else who was a Christian in my high school. And I only knew a handful of Christians in my big university I went to. In the Northeast, there aren't a ton of Christians walking around. And so, so I felt pretty alone a lot. But I would go to parties, and I'd have fun. And I was, I was a pretty wild kid. And I didn't drink. I didn't, I didn't get into a lot of immoral stuff. I, I did kind of crazy things, like jump off things you shouldn't. But, but, but my friends would say to me, Tonis, you don't need to drink, right? You, you seem to... Uh, be able to have fun without it. But I would go to these parties, and I got to tell you, as at, at times the only sober one there, I'd look around at everybody just, just laughing and, and dancing and having such a good time, but I'd look at their faces, and I could tell, even though they were planning to go home with a different girl tonight, there was often a sadness. I could see in their faces. And we used to go to Times Square on New Year's Eve, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's where the ball drops in New York City, the first place in the, in the country. It turns the new year, and everybody's there, and everybody's going crazy, kissing strangers and drinking and hooting and hollering and laughing. And there are times I just want to scream, what's everybody so excited about? What's everybody so excited about? If you're really honest, you'll realize that, you know, another year just means we're all one year closer to death. Yeah, it's true. And, and there are times I want to just shut the music off at these high school parties and say, you know, we're all going to die someday. Yeah, that kind of guy doesn't get invited to parties much. But, but we need somebody asking those questions. And so whether it's wisdom or pleasure, it doesn't add up to anything of lasting value when it's disconnected from God. Now, it doesn't mean things in life can't have meaning, but they get their meaning from the ultimate creator of it all. You know, one of the great horrible diseases of our day is pornography. And, and it's so accessible. I, I remember being a kid and finding a magazine in the woods that somebody had chucked over a bank. And, and, and it was the first time, and in one of the, like, three or four times in all my years of, of being a kid all the way through high school that I ever saw pornography. Now, it's just insane how accessible it is. I feel like I'd rather give my kid a, a loaded gun than an unfiltered phone. It's deadly, and it's killing our souls. That's what the Bible says. And if you need... Now, how many experiences of sexual sin do you need to find out it doesn't satisfy? It, look, I've been sinning 59 years. And I got news for you. 
Sin has not kept its promise once. It turns around, looks you in the face, and laughs in your face every time you believe what it promises. Every time. Every time. And, and it mocks us. I don't want to be mocked by, by giving in to things that don't satisfy. The Bible says that sexual immorality leads to death. It, it, it drips honey, the Bible says. So there's an initial attractiveness. But Solomon said, I, I gave myself to all the physical bodily pleasures I possibly could. And you know what it added up to? Nothing. Nothing. Now, that doesn't mean sex in a marriage context between a man and a woman for life isn't a wonderful gift from God. But, but when we go away from God's design for things, it kills us, starting with our souls. And Solomon's telling you the truth here. And so he says, then I tried possessions, you know, versus uh, four through eight. He said, I, I built all these things. I, I attained all these accomplishments. So wisdom didn't do it. Pleasure didn't do it. Possessions didn't do it. Solomon was richer than Bill Gates. You know, last time I read how much Bill Gates is worth, do you know how much he makes a day? A day. $30 million. That's how much my man is pulling in. Now, I'd love to sit down and talk with him and read Ecclesiastes to him because his marriage just fell apart. And I wonder if he sees all of his fortune in his $50 million home differently. Solomon was richer than Bill Gates, relatively speaking. Giorgio Armani, you know, fashion designer of, of some of the most famous and luxurious fashion in the world. Listen to this Giorgio Armani quote. You've heard of Armani fashions, right? Look what he says. I'll tell you something. Luxury disgusts me. I want young people to understand that today's world is false. They must understand that it is absurd to prostitute oneself or to steal just to get a designer bag because they think that without it, they're nobody. That's the guy who's made a fortune designing the stuff. And the people who design social media will tell you the same thing. It disgusts them what it's become. The billionaires who designed Facebook and designed Instagram and so many of the social media platforms that have gripped our lives, they feel great guilt for creating a society that's fragmented and falling apart. And they don't know what to do about it. They wish they could take it back. And that's where we are. God's the creator. He's the judge of all the earth. And so we answer to him. And so Ecclesiastes just keeps coming and saying, are you giving your life to what really matters? Are you giving your life to what really lasts? Are you worshiping the right things? It doesn't mean you can't love things that are gifts from God. The Bible says that God's made everything for us to enjoy. So it doesn't mean we, lead, we don't appreciate pleasure. Or possessions. Those are gifts from God. I'm thankful. I love my noise cancellation headphones. Oh, love those things. Yeah. I can be sitting, some, listen to somebody just drone on about something obnoxious, and I'll just put on my headphones and put on a little rain, crackling fireplace. I'll be in my own world, even in a coffee shop. I love, possessions can be good things. They can be gifts. But not your God. 
Noise cancellation headphones can be wonderful gifts, but terrible gods. And whatever it is we give our lives to can be a terrible God. And, and that's what I want us to realize. I, I want us to understand what the Bible teaches about sin. Now, sin, I think, of all the things Christians believe, is the easiest to prove. I believe God is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe in the Trinity. But as far as proving with evidence what we believe as Christians, I don't think there's anything easier to prove than that we have a sin problem in the world. We have a radical self-absorption in the world. As Luther said, an inward curvature of the self. If you don't believe we've got a serious sin problem in the world, just watch the news for 30 seconds or take an honest look into your own heart and you'll see we've got a massive sin problem that we can't solve. But even though it's the easiest thing to prove, I think it's the hardest thing for us to accept. That's why the film, when Adam says, pride is my greatest sin, pride will keep us from acknowledging our need for forgiveness our need for a savior. And so I want us to understand what the Bible says about sin, about our sinful condition in this world. Look at all the biblical terms for sin. Missing the mark, evil, disobedience, transgression, stepping over the line, iniquity, lawlessness, trespass, ignorance, godlessness, wickedness, unbelief, unrighteousness, and unholiness. These are not feel-good terms. These are confrontational terms that make me come to face to face with my own sinful rebellion against God. And let's not try to dance around it or, or euphemize it. You know, we use euphemisms to not actually say what things really are. And yeah, there are all kinds of results of sin, like being wounded or, or struggling, but those are symptoms of the big problem of rebellion against God. And so here's a good definition of sin. Anything in the creature which does not express or which is contrary to the creator. See how God-centered this definition is. Not its effects on me primarily, but my rebellion against my creator to live as my own God. That's the problem we all have, and we need to realize three really important things about sin. It's a heart problem. It's not primarily the things I do wrong. It's the heart that wants to. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. The heart is the, the idol factory, as Calvin said, that creates all of these false gods that we give ourselves to, and everybody worships. And sin's a worship problem. Don't let anybody think, oh, you religious people, you worship. I don't worship. I, I, I think rationally, I, scientifically. Everybody worships. Everybody gives themselves to something. It might be his girlfriend. It, it might be a, a passion, a hobby, a favorite band. It, it, it might be a video game that's captured your world. Everybody gives themselves devotedly to something. And that's what worship is. And worship is a, sin is a worship problem. It's always ultimately related to God. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the problem of sin. We've disconnected from eternity, from the things of earth. That's what we become obsessed with, the things of earth. And God determines these things for us. And finally, sin's a relationship problem. Your iniquities have separated from you and your God. And the penalty of sin is death. I played football for 16 years. And I messed my, that's a stupid game I played all those years. And I messed myself up a lot. I used to have what they call receiver finger. There's no joint in this pinky. 
I had it fused because it used to be on a 45 degree angle all the time. It was permanently dislocated. And I would get up to teach and in the first 10 seconds, I'd see half my students just recoiling in horror at this grotesque thing hanging off my hand. I finally got it fused years ago, so there's no joint, but there's no pain either. And there's no disgusting display of a, a dis permanently dislocated finger. But you know what? I had, I had you know, caught footballs for so long and dislocated it. This one is the, the nasty one now. But, but, um, but this was not going to fix itself. It had to be fused. It's amazing how they, they fuse a joint. There's no joint there anymore. But, but there was a fracture. And fractures don't fix themselves. And sin fractures our relationships between us and God. We have a fractured relationship between us and God. We have fractured relationships between us and other people. Even in our own families and among our best friends, there, there tends to be constant friction and separation because of our self-absorption. There's a fracture between us and creation. We're at war with creation. Whether it's an animal that'll kill you out in the wilderness or cancer cells, we're at war with creation. We live in a cursed world. And finally, we're at war within ourselves. Paul says, I do the very thing I hate. This old man, even in a believer, is at war with who he is now as a new creature. We've got a fractured relationship even within ourselves. And basically, sin is disobeying what God says. It, it boils down to that. We saw Ecclesiastes is saying, fear God and obey his commands to what it boils down to because sin is disobeying God's commandments. And we need to take God's commandments deadly seriously. And so, are we going to do that? Are we going to take God's perspective seriously? I have a terrible habit of disobeying doctor's orders. I've been hurt a lot in my life taken off the field in an ambulance at times. I told you I was a wild kid. And, and I'm, I'm infamous among those who know me well, especially my wife. And my wife hates this about me. I will get a prescription at the doctor's office, and before I leave the office, I'll throw it out and, and won't even fill it. Or I'll stop taking it weeks before I'm supposed to. Or I'll, one day I cut a cast off that I had in my leg in the garage with a hacksaw two weeks before I was supposed to get it off because I was just sick of it. So I, I could be an idiot like that. And my wife hates that about me. And here's what she says to me all the time. She says, Eric, the doctor said to leave your cast on two more weeks and you're taking it off. Right, I'm sick of it. I think I'm fine. I, th I think he just want, doesn't want to get sued, I'll say. And, and she'll say, let me ask you something. How many years do you think the doctor went to med school? And I'll say, I don't know, like 20. She said, right. And how many years did you go to med school, Eric? Not one day. Right, and you know better than the doctor. See, that's what sin is, thinking we know better than the creator about the way we're supposed to live our lives. And so we disobey him. And we don't have much of a place for obedience these days, doing what God says, saying, yes, Lord, every time he speaks to us. You guys remember Smokey the Bear? Yeah. You remember what his old slogan used to be? Only you can prevent forest fires. And he used to point at you. This is what Smokey used to look like, right? That's my daughter, Paigey. That's Smokey. That's my daughter, Paige, when she was little. See, Smokey the Bear, he's pointing at you, holding you responsible. He's holding you responsible for your behavior. And do you know who starts most fires? 15 to 23-year-olds. 
So the ad campaign has shifted now. And do you know what the new Smokey looks like? He doesn't hold you responsible anymore. This is the new Smokey. He hugs you when you do the right thing. Now, I'm all for hugs. I'm all for affirming people when they do the right thing. But how about responsibility for what you do? How about owning your wrong behavior? Listen to what the designer of the new Smokey says. The hugs are part of the decision to turn Smokey into a character who is depicted as rewarding people rather than entreating them or admonishing them to take personal responsibility. It's moving the tone away from sober, which doesn't resonate with young people. Oh, my bad. That doesn't resonate? Okay. We won't emphasize it anymore. See what I mean about just emphasizing what I happen to resonate with at the moment? While maintaining the seriousness of the issue, Smokey's in changing from a teacher or authority figure to a model of positive reinforcement. And I thank God and is all about affirming us, but he's the judge of all the earth, too. He, he, he brings conviction of sin out of kindness. He, he brings a solution to that as well. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the solution. Because the thief only comes, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus comes that we might have life and have it abundantly. But if you're going to find that life, if you're going to find forgiveness and righteousness in Jesus, you cannot avoid the reality of what you need forgiveness for. If you minimize the holiness of God, you'll minimize the reality of your sin. And you'll minimize how much you need forgiveness. And you won't understand how incredibly forgiven we're able to be because of the grace of God. We need a miracle to come face to face with the reality of our sinful condition. And that's what we've been praying for will happen in all our lives. Let's pray. Lord, help us to grow and to know who you are. So that, and then we can take an honest look at ourselves and see who we are. Made in your image. Glorious in that. But terribly fish-shaking rebellious in your face with our sin. Every one of us, Lord, boots up sinful. Thank you that you have provided a way of escape. And I pray as we think together about what sin looks like in each of our hearts. It takes on different forms for some of us. It looks awfully similar for most of us. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to mostly come to grips with our own pride, thinking we know better than you, the doctor who prescribed righteousness, and we chose the path of rebellion. So help us, Lord, in these things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.